seats down front. Um, and just for a little bit of information, if you or others that you know want to hear and see what's going on but can't make it over here, you can text them and tell them that we are on live stream chat. So um, those of you who have friends who want to get some extra credit, it's November, right? Good evening, everybody. I'm Pam Gates. I'm the interim dean of the College of Humanities, Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'd like to welcome you here tonight to the Dr. Harold Abel Endowed Lecture Series in the Study of Dictatorship, Democracy, and Genocide. Um, this particular endowment was established in 2009 by the family of Harold Abel, who served as president of Central Michigan University from 1975 to 1985. Dr. Abel passed away in 2002. This speaker series brings to campus distinguished scholars to discuss the impact of worldwide genocide and historical events such as the Holocaust and mass murders in Africa, Southeast Asia, and Central America. This particular series is one of many that we do on the College of Humanities, Social and Behavioral Sciences. And we have designated November as Human Rights Month. And we have a number of events going on. We began with a visit from Invisible Children. Last week, as many of you know, we were able to return 144 remains of the ancestors to the Saginaw Chippewa tribe, which we are very, very proud of, CMU. And we have a number of wonderful events that will be continuing on for uh, the rest of the month. I invite you to stop by the table outside the auditorium because we have a number of flyers, including an opportunity for a study abroad this summer, which will be offering students the opportunity to go to The Hague and study with the international court system. So those are a few things that we do. And at this time, I'd like to introduce Dr. Eric Johnson. There you are. Who will introduce our speaker for the evening? Thank you very much, uh, Dean Gates, and uh, welcome to all of you here. I'm glad to see that there's such a uh, good crowd in attendance. I happen to know this man actually a little bit, and so it makes me feel good, especially, to uh, see all of you there, as I'm sure it would be very important to him, and I know it is to his family. Um, I'm really honored to be able to introduce one of the world's truly leading um, scholars of German history and history in general and of the Nazi Germany and of now comparative genocides as well as a number of other things like women's history with which Professor Coombs has probably written the most important book at least in America maybe in the world um, on uh, the history of women in the Third Reich and that was early, one of her early endeavors. Uh, but before I go on and say a couple more things about her, I was asked just to say a little bit, just for a second, about the significance of this night. This is November 9th. Got that? 
Um, a lot of things happened on November 9th. I was just recently in Compiègne, France, and uh, was uh, actually recognized that the Germans actually were signing the peace treaty, or the sort of diktat they had against them as they saw it, or the armistice at the beginning of the First World War uh, on November 9th. But the November 9th is picked for this particular speaker series for a different reason, and that is this was the night of broken glass, as it's called in German, Kristallnacht. This is the night that, for the first time, on a mass basis, violence was undertaken against the Jewish people of Germany, just because they were Jews. And there's a whole story behind that, and maybe you'll be encouraged to read about that story. Um, many of you may know quite a bit about it, but I'll just say that some 267 synagogues were burned down on this night and the following day, virtually everyone in the hall of the German nation, and that included Austria already by this time. There were some 22, I believe, synagogues in Vienna, the capital of Austria, now in Germany alone. So this is a very significant night on which to hold a talk by a distinguished speaker on the history of the Holocaust and the history of genocide. Professor Kuntz, holds uh, a chair in history and then called the Peabody Family Chair at Duke University. She has held a number of very important awards and fellowships, most recently at the American Academy of Berlin, I think, which I'm rather envious of her about having been that. Also, she has a Guggenheim, which uh, many of us academics, anyway, know is uh, one of the top of the heap of what you got. I've never got one of those myself, so I'm, uh, I, I am kind of getting envious of uh, Professor Kuhn's on, on that regard. And um, she is, beyond writing the book The Mothers in the Fatherland, which was, again, her original breakout blockbuster book already, I won't say when, but a few years ago, um, that she then has written several other books on the history of women in Europe, and more recently a book on the history of conscience and morality in German society called the Nazi Conscience, trying to explain, I think, how German people could actually do the things that they did and somehow survive with themselves and deal with themselves. She has moved from that to study the whole history of genocide in the world, which is an enormous undertaking. I don't exactly know how to do it. I'm trying to think about it a little bit myself. And so I'm very intrigued and interested to find out what Professor Kunz will tell us on her talk about genocide and the moral order in a globalized world, comparing genocides and somehow making some linkages between different governmental types of organizations and genocides that have taken place. And so I don't think there's anybody that would be more capable of doing this. And I am thrilled personally to have her here. I've known many of her students and her colleagues for years, and I'm really happy to get to know her a little bit more myself. So please, I'll give you four to call you close. there's another chair down here, but there aren't. Um, thank you all for coming out. In the middle of the semester, it's that time, the worst time of the semester, except for the last few weeks, 
between Thanksgiving, between Halloween and Thanksgiving, and here you came out to hear it. What's bound to be a very dreary lecture about a terribly somber topic. And I think this is a fitting way to pay tribute to Dr. Abel and to try to see if we together collectively can learn something or understand something about three very big themes, dictatorship, democracy, and genocide. Now, that's a lot for 45 minutes, so I'm going to time myself. I'm going to 45 minutes, and then you get to ask me questions. So wherever I am in 45 minutes, I will stop. <coughs> so let's just remember, just sorry, I've got to. No, it doesn't. Okay. Um, I'm on a tether, so I have to be careful. Um, okay. The night of the broken glass is actually a euphemism. Kristallnacht. The Nazis were geniuses for, for inventing euphemisms. Actually, it was a pogrom, but a pogrom is a nasty word. And the night of the broken glass sounds somehow a little bit, a broken crystal sounds a little bit romantic. And here are pictures from November 9th and 10th, 1938. And the synagogues burned every Jewish stop, shop office in Germany was looted, glass was broken, <coughs> stormtroopers broke into Jewish houses and threw out everything they could. It was absolutely lawless. This was the first outbreak of violence against Jews because they were Jews, as Eric pointed out. It was also the last because the Nazis, nobody knows better than Professor Johnson, had a very, very good sense of public opinion. And public opinion was negative. People may have been anti-Semitic, but they hated the destruction of private, personal private property. And so that's the paradox, in a way, of this time. And in fact, particularly the businessmen in the Nazi party were upset. And why? Because they had to replace all the broken glass. The insurance companies had to pay for the replacement of all the damage that the Nazis did. So the Nazi government figured out the answer. They charged a tax on the Jews so the Jews would pay for their own repairs and the insurance companies wouldn't lose any money. 30,000 Jewish men were taken to concentration camps that night. They were released only when they got a visa to leave the country. By 1939, in September, 250,000 German Jews had left out of a population of 500,000. And I've talked to people who survived Kristallnacht, and they say, you know, in a way, that terrible violence saved their lives. Because they knew after that, there was no future in Nazi Germany, and everyone tried to get out. Okay, now, um, let's move on to the topic tonight. And first of all, what's globalized? I'm sounding very funny to myself. Am I sounding okay to you? It sounds like, oh, you can't believe what I sound like. It's like half in, half out. I guess we're not used to this. Okay. So first of all, globalized. Isn't it redundant, globalized world? Why not just globe? Why globalized? Globalized has become slang that means integrated. It means, to me anyway, integrated space where national sovereignty breaks down, where 
Borders are weakened by trade and food, by finance, by manufactured goods, as well as illegal exchanges in weapons, people, and drugs. And what about genocide? What is genocide? Let's ask the man who coined the term, Raphael Lemkin, who himself was a person who escaped from occupied Poland in 1939-1940. Coined the term, oh gosh, you know what, I think I'm going to have to read it from here. What his defining terms were is mass killing of all members of a nation is intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of life, of the life of national groups within, with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. According to Lemkin, that might be forced uh, assimilation of children, kidnapping of children and raising them in another culture. It could mean physical destruction. It could mean economic destruction. He also felt, and he lived in Harlem when he was thinking about these topics, he also felt that it was genocidal to allow certain kinds of people, ethnic groups, to have unlimited access to drugs and too much sex. He was kind of a Puritan, uh, living up there on 112th Street in an integrated rooming house in 1946. That was sort of dicey. Uh, anyway, the UN did not accept this broad definition. So the definition is somewhat narrower. But let's, let's work with this. Okay, I want to cover three parts of this talk. First of all, ask the question about what social scientists can tell us about the link between genocide and particular political configurations. There's a mini field out there in genocide studies that it tries to predict genocide. It's a little like predicting volcanoes, and they try to measure how we get the variables, how can we tell. So I'll run through a couple of social scientific paradigms that explain genocide. Then I'll move from the macro to the micro and talk about oral history and what we learn about genocide by talking to interviewing survivors and perpetrators. And then finally, and most this will take the most time, how the cultures of impunity get created, within which ordinary people who are perfectly decent can commit absolutely horrible crimes without a great deal of mental anguish afterwards. Minimum of, it, of PTSD. PTSD, right. Um, okay, so let's first of all just remember the 20th century was a century of mass death, like no other century before. And genocide, to me anyway, is modern. That is, pre-modern states are, don't have the means to commit genocide. So let's just think for a second about death in the 20th century. Uh, there's no way really of, court of, of estimating this except to look at the sheer numbers. At the top is a graveyard from World War I, at the bottom is a graveyard from uh, 2010, from the uh, war in Iraq. And we also should remember that the century began after the First World War was over with the world pandemic, the influenza. In fact, the estimates are so vague, they don't know if 20 million people died worldwide or 40 million people.
people died worldwide. This is this was the century of mass death. I hope I can say was, and I hope the 21st will be better. In fact, the terrible thing about the influenza is that young people were adversely affected. And in fact, influenza was so common that kids had a poem about it. I had a little bird, its name was Enza. I opened the window and in flew Enza. That tells you how commonplace the specter of death was in 1918-1919. Now, let's move to a very unusual website, Gerhard Rommel. Rommel teaches at the University of Hawaii and he counts. Oh, does he count. He's the person who compiled the, the list of dead in the 20th century. And so his theory is that totalitarian governments are more prone to genocide than democracies. Pretty simple thesis. I put this up so you can have the pleasure of browsing his quite idiosyncratic uh, website. He's got poems. He's got his own photography up there. It's a kind of a department store of genocide and the author, and he counts and he counts and he counts. Um, and one of the things he statistically goes through the 20th century. You'll notice the deadliest part of the 20th century is 1936 to 1946, the middle of the century. And optimistically, he stopped this graph in, at the end of the Cold War. And so, of course, we'll see that the statistics go up if we went further, but he didn't go further. One of his points is that the ratio of the people killed in war the ratio between civilians and military shifts over time. So that originally in the First World War, military deaths far outweighed civilian deaths. And in recent wars, civilian deaths far outweigh military deaths. Just quickly, in, and this is, I'm not saying Vietnam is a, is a genocide, it wasn't. The United States suffered about 50,000 US casualties. The Vietnamese in 1995 published their statistics. They had not wanted to publish them earlier because they would have demoralized people. The estimate of the Vietnamese dead is about 4 million. Iraq, a total million casual, total casualties run around 4,000 4, right now. And the civilian death totals are probably around 100,000, at least according to the British medical magazine, The Lancet. So, one of the things that's to, that social scientists do is just count to keep the record. Uh, the rest of us, our minds bottle, but they keep the record so we can study it. Another, another occupation is, and I'll just show you the, the impression, Barbara Harf is one of the great political scientists who predicts genocide. And here she's got risk factors. She treats genocide as if it's an epidemic and she lists risk factors, she does multiple regression analyses, et cetera, to try to predict when genocide happens. Now, a very, very different approach says you can't learn anything from statistics. I think it was Stalin who said one death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. And Michael Mann, is a political theorist, political scientist, and he has a very different approach to the study of genocides. And he has a very different thesis. Michael Mann says, the most dangerous type of government is a democracy. 
democracies historically have killed more people than authoritarian governments. Now, how can he say this? I bet some of you already have the answer. He goes back a century farther than Rommel. Michael Mann starts counting with imperialism and counts white, <coughs> white perpetrators, atrocities against Africans, Native Americans, Native South Americans, Asians, everywhere. And Michael Mann comes up with the hypothesis that whenever two cultures meet, and that happens more and more, that's what globalization is about, but whenever two cultures meet, and he's looking mostly at white cultures meeting other cultures, the result is some kind of accommodation. At the best, there's integration, mutual respect, and on the upper left-hand side, there's no violence at all. The next most violent kind of encounter is institutional coercion, so that kids of a minority may not learn their own language in school, and it goes on police repression, violent repression, etc. And across the top, he's got types of solutions to multi-ethnic, uh, multi-ethnic living together. And I don't have time to go into it, but on the lower left-hand side is genocide. So Michael Mann does the opposite of count. He's trying to capture a process and to explain how genocides evolves out of particular circumstances. And <coughs> fighting off a cold, and I'm doing very well, but with the result with the help of antihistamine, which makes me really thirsty. Uh, and now, finally, the last kind of statistic I want to talk about is maps. Maps also tell us something about genocide. And very recently, in fact, just two weeks ago, this map was published in a review of Timothy Snyder's brand new book, 2010, called Bloodlands. Snyder's thesis is, and he's absolutely correct, that our idea of the Holocaust, which is concentration camps, even Auschwitz, where there's a kind of a mechanical killing, uh, impersonal killing, doesn't begin to scratch the surface. Mass death occurred in the borderlands between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. First, the people who lived there were slaughtered by the Soviets when they invaded. Then they were slaughtered again when the Nazis came in. And then they suffered a third time when the Soviets reoccupied the territory. And Timothy Snyder is doing absolutely groundbreaking work about a different kind of killing that we don't associate with the Holocaust. Why? First of all, very few people survived. Secondly, when they did survive, most of them remained in the Soviet Union they didn't think about their past. Nobody published their books, for sure. And if they did, their books weren't translated into English. So Timothy Snyder is doing groundbreaking work on mass murder, genocide under the Nazis in these areas that are shaded. Poland, Belarus, Lithuania, Ukraine, all throughout Central Europe. OK. So that's what social scientists tell us about. All right, that's models. I'm a historian, so I kind of have a bias. And I think, well, all right. But this isn't quite like mapping business trends. Isn't there a way to get closer to the experience of genocide? And so for that, let 
we move from the macro to the microcosm and to talk briefly about a different kind of knowledge that journalists collect, historians collect. Um, Eric certainly collected it from his sources for his book on Cologne. And that is oral history. And just let me run through a couple of classics in this field. One of them was written by Theodore Abel, who had the great idea in 1931. He was a professor at Columbia. He went to Nazi Germany. And if any of you are fans of Stieg Larsson uh, and the girl with the dragon tattoo, etc., all right. Um, it's, it's the bestseller. It's a movie and all that. And so you'll know that in that film, the protagonist sets up a fake contest, and that's how he traps the guilty person. Well, Abel took himself over to Nazi, into Germany in 1933, and he sponsored an essay contest. Only people who joined the Nazi party before 1933 could answer. And the question was, how and why I became a Nazi? And he offered a prize out of his own money. He offered 10 top prizes. And he got over 600 responses of people telling him why they became Nazis. And I read those when I was working on my first book. And I have to say, it's really fun. I thought I'd give you a sense of what it's like to be a historian. We've talked about the numbers. This is what historians we do. We slog reading through these letters through these old documents, and then we come along the handwritten stuff. It's really hard. And so when Abel, when Theodore Abel went through his uh, 600 answers, he threw out all the women. So I was happy. I said, great, that's more for me to do. And so I put in the women. And I looked at the answer. And what I noticed with the men and the women they never said when I became a Nazi party member. They didn't use the word NSDAP. That's the abbreviations for Nazi. They spoke about my freedom. When I joined the freedom movement, our freedom movement, they didn't think they were joining a political movement, a regular political movement. They came from all different political backgrounds. They felt they found their home in their freedom movement. And so, this is what you hear, I hear, when I read these accounts. Two other, there's two other, three other books I'd like to recommend. One of them is a stunning book about Rwanda, Machete Season. A French journalist lived right next to the prison, which housed people, perpetrators, in the Rwandan genocide. And you can't believe the interviews. I won't say more than that. Milton Mayer went, he was Jewish, American, and went to live in Germany for a year in 1950, 49-50, and he just wanted to hang out with the guys. You know, sit around and talk, what was it like? And he got pretty much the same answer in 1949-50 that Abel got in 1933. They still believed in Nazism, they thought it was fine, they thought of it as freedom. They were, they were a little more anti-Semitic. Abel's sample wasn't particularly anti-Semitic. They weren't drawn to it, but the uh, Milton Mayers all were. And so he titled his, his book, They Thought They Were Free. And here I want to pause before going on to the next. How many of you have an iPod? 
Okay. How many of you are going home for Thanksgiving? All right. Use your iPods. Talk to your parents. Talk to your grandparents. Ask them about the world now. Ask them about the world in the future. You will be creating a document for your family. You don't have to write it down. Your ancestor, your descendants won't have to read it. Well, of course, they may not be able to read it because if the code changed. No, we won't go there. Um, anyway, think of using your status as a student. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, sometimes people think, well, you know, they want to they interview me because I'm getting old, et cetera, et cetera. You go home and you say to them, help me with my homework, grandpa or grandma, or aunt or uncle or mom or dad. Um, I have this assignment. And then you can sit and talk to them, guaranteed, no matter what they say, they're going to be interesting. And as Milton Mayer said, the reason he liked talking with ordinary people and studying them is he said, God just made so many of them that they're worth looking at. And so my point here is that it's worth it to look at the grassroots. And then there's another source, David Boder. David Boder, teaching at University of, uh, Illinois, University of Indiana at Bloomington. 1946 said, you know those people who been through those camps, they really had quite some experience. I think, I think it'd be interesting to talk to them. So he went over with one of these wire tape recorders, huge thing, he slept it around from one camp to the other and he came up with 70 interviews, all of which are on the web. You can just Google uh, David Boder. I did not interview the dead, and all of the original has been replaced and, because their accents are very heavy, their script is written in English. So you can listen to what they said, and you just, this is what the Holocaust seemed like in 1946. You are there. It's just, it's an amazing resource. And so you get a different kind of perspective when you look at the microcosm. Okay, now, third part. What happens in the middle? How do you connect up these ordinary people with the terrible statistics that you read about? And actually, that's, that's where most of my work is, is, in trying to understand how a culture of impunity is created, how governments, powerful political movements, create a movement so powerful, an identity so powerful, that people who feel part of it feel that other kinds of people are barely human. And how does this happen? Okay, let's go back. Let's stay with Michael, Ma uh, with Michael Mann for a minute and think, okay, let's say maybe the, the white conquest of North and South America was genocide. The statisticians have gone to work with the cultural anthropologists. They've come to the conclusion that probably there were 100 million Native Americans here. Uh, before the first white person arrived. That's like 10 times more than anybody thought before. And that makes the total numbers on the genocide much higher. And when you read the chroniclers, you read about how heroic people felt. Except for this man, 
who was a friar, a Spanish friar, and he carefully kept track of the terrible, terrible atrocities, and he took them back to Holland and had them engraved, and his books were still preserved today. The, mine are taken from the website of the University of Pennsylvania. So here are pictures of some of the horrible ways that white conquistadores treated Native Americans, burning them, terrible. I'm, of course, the tragedy is, is obvious, but what I'm interested in is what people said. What did they think they were doing? And if you see these pictures, they're horrifying. They weren't just killing. This is not just spreading disease. This is torturing, tormenting, causing terrible pain. So there's an extra edge of sadism, I think. Why? Okay. You've all read about the Puritan Fathers. Maybe you even remembered for your AP class studying Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was speaking about the Indians. Once you have but got the track, track of those ravenous, howling wolves, that's the Indians, then pursue them vigorously, turn not your back until they are consumed. Beat them all as small as dust before the wind. That from a Puritan founding father. <coughs> what about this one? I'll see if you can guess who said this. If we are constrained to lift the hatchet against any tribe, we shall never lay it down till that tribe is exterminated or driven beyond the Mississippi. In war they will kill some of us. We shall destroy all of them. <coughs> this is not the language of a guilty murderer. This is the language of someone serving a higher purpose. And he was, of course, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I know you thought that was, you thought something else was the skeleton in the family closet. Well, here's something else. Uh, okay. Uh, now let's look at this journalist in the 1860s. The nobility of the redskin is extinguished. Of course, they were murdered by the United States army. And what few are left are a pack of whining curs who lick the hand that smites them. The white by law of conquest are masters of the American continent, and the best safety of the frontier settlements will be secured by the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. Why not annihilation? Their glory has fled. Notice the, the, past, the, the passive tense. Their spirit broken, their manhood effaced, Better they should die than live like the miserable wretches that they are. By L. Frank Baum. Well, who's he? He's the author of The Wizard of Oz, who was a wonderful feminist, a great liberal, and yet you begin to think maybe Michael Mann had something in mind when he thought Democrats are dangerous. He is. Perfectly nice looking guy, right? Okay, I want to quickly go through this really, really quickly because I want to catch up to where I should be. In 1904, the Germans faced a rebellion in their, co their colony, which is now Namibia, and they moved in and they quashed the rebellion. And they exterminated, of 80,000 Herero people, they exterminated all but 16 within a few weeks but they didn't even waste the ammunition. They drove them into the desert and let them starve. And 
all the while justifying the possibility of whites living peacefully together with blacks is very slight, unless at first blacks are reduced to forced labor, and that is a sort of slavery. These are survivors of the genocide against the Herero people in 1904. And I think that counts as the first genocide of the 20th century. All the time, and here I'm getting to my point, all the time, anthropologists were studying this process. In the earlier part of our history, that is of North and South America, the justification for extermination was religious. As we get into the 20th century, the experts come on stage and they studied the tribes they were about ready to extinguish. In fact, critical anthropologists call this salvage research. These are Indians of North and South America who quickly became, became extinct. Notice the passive, they became extinct as if it sort of just happened. Like white settlers would arrive in the, in the Americas and say, oh, there's nothing there. This is empty land, virgin land even. So now the <coughs> Every genocide has its own particular kind of mindset. I'm moving fast forward to, to two terrible starvation, planned starvations in the Soviet Union. And I, my point here is, to show you the kind of rhetoric that made the perpetrators feel they were doing a good job. Lenin, 1920, the clean sweep. Just get rid of the dirt. And this, Kulak eradication. You see how crude the posters are. So every kind of genocide, every system of government, every culture has its own kind of I won't say propaganda. People don't think it's propaganda. They think it's truth. So I won't say propaganda. I should say rationalizations, maybe. Okay, now move on to a subject I know better, and that is Germany. The Germans perfected the study of the face. Here, for example, are four wonderful, perfect Aryan women. The mother of Albrecht Dürer, on the bottom is the mother of Goethe, a great writer. On the lower right, the mother of Schiller. And who is on the upper left? Hitler's mother, of course. So these are examples of uh, racial science. And here is an example, and this is salvage anthropology too. The Jews in the Polish city of Tarnow, before they were taken to Auschwitz, were they were forced to have faces made, they had pictures taken of their faces, and their faces were cast in plaster. And they made plaster casts of the people they were about to exterminate for future study. And it was very, very embarrassing when a number of them turned up in a crate in the bottom of the Vienna uh, Natural History Museum, and it was still more embarrassing when a uh, whole cache of their papers turned up in the basement of the Smithsonian. But now that's been studied. And so once again, we've got this scientific interest that reduces the moral hazard to the perpetrators. 
here for one of the best-selling, I've had the best time. Hans F. K. Gunther was such a famous man internationally, all his books were translated. I was looking him up in the Duke Library, and I found it was under Dewey Decimal System. He's still classified as pure science. And he's a, he looks at faces, he judges types. Uh, these are Jewish types, of course. Can't you just tell they're Jewish types? Right, it's completely absurd. That's why you need an expert. Ah. I might have some. Well, very quickly, high science got translated into popular science. And everywhere, before you went to the feature film, you would see a 10 minute short on the latest technology. Alles Lebensschwache geht in der Natur unfehlbar zugrunde. Wir Menschen haben gegen dieses Gesetz der natürlichen Auslese in den letzten Jahrzehnten furchtbar gesündigt. Ja. Well, it's hard to compete with that, but I think I should move on. You get the idea. This is very dramatic at the time. Dark movie house, they've never seen flickering sound on the stage, flickering sight and sound on the stage. It's very dramatic. So the Germans perfected the study of human difference. Here is, for example, an article, Popular Science, on Jewish criminals, taking pictures of the Jewish criminal mugshots and showing them, just so that if 30,000 of them who looked normal were taken to Dachau, well, that's just what they deserved. And I think it's important that they look sort of normal. That's why you need an expert to be able to recognize them, right? Okay. Usually, at least when I was growing up, my mom and dad said, do not stare at people if they have a broken leg. Don't stare at the misbegotten. The Nazis, Hitler youth said the opposite. They said, it's okay. Stare at those unfortunate people because we don't want them anymore. Do we want them? No, we don't. This poor child, that picture got recycled and recycled more often than you can think. The translation is, God doesn't want inferior creatures to reproduce. So the morality is shifted from the state to religion. Example? Now, notice this. It's in English. Racial derivation of a Jewish type. Well, who did that? And where did he do it? You heard of the Peabody Museum? Harvard's Natural History Museum, Alfred A. Ernest, sorry, Ernest, Ernest Albert Houghton was the outstanding anthropologist of his day. The American Anthropology <coughs> Association still gives a prize every other year in his name. And the Americans were every bit as involved in racial science as the Germans. And these are two co uh, copies of, of pages from his book. <coughs> and here is group of imbeciles is the product of dysgenic marriages. They suffer, each suffer from a group. This problem. This group of imbeciles is the product of the... Oh, wait a minute. I've got this doubled. Ah, nuts. Anyway, which make them incapable of living happy, productive lives. They are among the better not born people who would be better off dead. And that is from the Fitter family publicity in 1926 United States. So that the ideas of eugenics were everywhere, not only in Nazi Germany. And then this is the last chink in the armor. What makes Nazis 
popular. These three great intellectuals of the 20th century, and you've never heard of Gerhard Kittel because he died in 1946, um, unfortunately, and he didn't have a career afterwards, but Kittel is one of the great theological historians of the century. And people would argue that Carl Schmitt is the most brilliant political theorist of the 20th century, not just in Germany, and Martin Heidegger in philosophy was terribly important. All three of these men joined the Nazi party in the spring of 1933. That was terribly important because these intellectuals and dozens and dozens of professors, particularly in med schools, joined the Nazi party after the seizure of power, and what that said to the middle class was, oh, Herr Doctor Professor is joining, it must be okay. It can't be too bad if he's joining. And so ordinary people who looked down at the Nazis were able to think, well, you know, maybe there's something to it. And so you see how authority has changed from religion and God to science experts in the secular world in the 20th century. And okay. Now, how, what happens as the result of that? What happens, I think, this came to my mind this afternoon in uh, class of Eric's. What happens to the conscience is people draw a fence around it. And if you could be, Freud actually, Sigmund Freud, said if he were writing the Golden Rule, he would say, do unto others the way you think they would do unto you. Huh. That changes things, doesn't it? Look around you. Who would you trust? <coughs> so the bonds of a community are forged by ethnic belonging, by culture, by religion. Why do we pay taxes? Well, we figure if we're in trouble, well, I know some of you don't like taxes. None of us like taxes. But anyway, if I'm in trouble, I want the safety net to care for me, therefore I'm going to pay the taxes, and that's just part of life. But people, altruism is fenced off based on people's feeling of community. And what in modern society happens is that people... People are told and they learn at school that there are other kinds of people that don't deserve to be in their universe of moral uh, obligation. That there are some people who are so vile and so evil or so depraved that they don't deserve to be treated morally because probably they wouldn't treat us morally. And this is really what happens in Nazi Germany and which happens in the formation of prejudice in the 21st century. I don't think there will ever be another genocide. There will never be another Holocaust in a modern, industrialized country. It will not happen. The Nazi, in that respect, the Nazi Holocaust is unique, or some people prefer calling it the Shoah. On the other hand, I think if we watch the world around us, we think that it's important, I think, for us to get inside the minds of historical figures in the past who made genocide not just respectable, but righteous. 
and to look carefully at experts in our own time. Now, I, I, this morning in USA Today, I know you're all too busy to read the newspaper, but I was in a, in a motel, so I had time. We noticed there's a big feature on the Imam Anwar al-Akwabi, Awaiki. I can't read my own writing. I won't. He was educated in America. He operates a website, probably out of Yemen, and he is a vile preacher of hatred. He is an extremist if there ever was one. And he's making headlines all over because he was raised in this country. And what we have to do is to understand that he doesn't represent anybody except a very small radical fringe. And we have to resist, I think, the temptation to generalize to other Muslims. And at the same time, we also expect, we also expect other people outside of our country to understand that we are not represented by Reverend Terry Jones. We hope they don't look at Terry Jones and say, oh my gosh, Americans are terrible. And that's the challenge for both of us, for us in America to understand that Muslims are not represented by their radical friends, and for people in the world to understand America is not Terry Jones. Um, so what do we have? Let me wrap up. I'll, I'll skip a slide that I was going to show, but we may come back to later. Okay, so this is hard, because you know the extremes are always a lot more interesting. Sensationalism is always more interesting. Who wants to read a headline about good news? Of course, that's terrible. No news is bad news. Uh, it's really hard to stay in the middle of any debate. And I think it's important that we understand the history of genocide in all these dimensions so that it's a warning to ourselves to pay attention. When does difference matter and when does it not? And I think we Americans have a couple of things going for us. One of them is a sense of humor, to which I'd like to add this. Now, so those of you who don't have 100-100 vision, I don't care if she is a tape dispenser. I love her. <laughs> I think it's always good to laugh. This happens to be from the New Yorker, of course. And then in conclusion, I'd like to say that we in this country have an American dream. And I'll close with a Norman Rockwell. And that's it. by outside forces, and of course chicken and egg is all this together, but I think that when a community gets frightened, 
when a community gets frightened, it makes itself susceptible. Let's think of it like an epidemic. Like when, when you don't sleep and when you drink, don't drink enough water, you get susceptible to the common cold. I think a community becomes susceptible when they're scared of something. They don't just do it out of, out of nothing. I know, it's really scary, isn't it? I really empathize, too. I'm scared of what I got in, and I thought, oh, my gosh, all those people. And if you want to just shout out your question and risk my having to rephrase it, I can do that, too, if you're, if you're mic shy. I was glad to hear that you don't think there will be another Holocaust, but I'd like to know why you're so certain. Oh, in the industrialized world? Because I think that our, we're too, our senses are too sharpened to the danger signs, and I think that no regime would, could get away with marginalizing and destroying people. I can see Europeans expelling Roma, I can see Europeans expelling all Muslims. I can see maybe in some cases having citizenship removed. So I can see bureaucratic, terrible suffering imposed. What I don't think will happen is mass murder on a scale of six million. That, that's what won't happen, I think. It may just be a subtler, no, it's a difference between, there's a real difference between mass murder and bureaucratic harassment. Suffering. That, that's why I'm optimistic. I, I'm like I'm a. You can't work as a Nazi historian your whole life without thinking glass half full. Maybe that's it. Yes. Late genocide. question. What about the elites? You know, what are our elites supposed to do? They're supposed to guide the rest of us. We're supposed to be able to give our trust in them, and we find in every genocide that particularly intellectual elites are often the leaders. Um, Sigmund Freud said something wonderful about this. Freud always believed until the First World War when his son was killed that as we became more civilized, we would become less murderous because our conscience would be improved by the state. And he said with great bitterness in 1916, after I think it was the only year in his life when he didn't write anything, he was so shocked by the death of his son, he said, I thought that the state was making our conscience better. And I found out that all they wanted to do was monopolize it like salt and tobacco, which are monopolies and were monopolies in Europe. And so, yes, elites are really important. 
I think what happens is they see power coming towards them, they realize they can be the spokesperson, and particularly in Armenia, the elites were democratic liberals who turned against the Armenians when the war went bad. And so, yes, I, that's why I mentioned Heidegger, Kittel, and Schmidt. Yeah, elites everywhere. Think of the talk shows. Think of talk radio. <coughs> the experts who you listen to. Yeah. Question? I thought I'd try out the microphone. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I would agree that the modern Holocaust in modern countries seems very unlikely. But would, I, I see very scary examples of modern-day eugenics in the United States that happen all the time. Um, and they often hide behind, politicians often use them and hide behind the guise of science. Um, one quick example I was thinking of a few years ago, I think it was in Louisiana, there was a representative that were going to pay, when it proposed legislation to pay poor people to become sterilized and, and offer tax incentives for quote unquote rich people to have more children. And, and so, of course, this is not a Holocaust, but it's certainly um, very scary when, when Politicians, and this actually came very close to becoming a, a bill, I guess, if I remember my political science correctly. So, yeah, I, I didn't know if you wanted to comment on that because I think that's just that. Well, I won't say just as scary, but it's certainly very scary. It is. This is a warning sign, and I think these wake-up calls. We wake up because we see the history. Well, if we didn't see the history, we wouldn't wake up. And so I can only hope that this bill will die before it hits the floor. It did. I mean, this was a yeah. few years ago, but but it came very close, and it was some some, well, our some country, political um, commentators right. that were supporting it. Even. And our country started the first mass sterilizations against people's will, starting in 1902. I know the progressive states were the first, and the Supreme Court in 1926 ratified sterilization without somebody knowing they were being sterilized. With the rationale, our finest blood was spilled into the battlefields of World War One. the least these inferior people can do is sacrifice their right to procreate. Right. But I think it's knowledge of the past that gives us an alert system. I hope. Yeah. How important is rhetoric in neighbors and citizens as enemies as as in as as other in in the role of of say in Germany and and in other places. Rhetoric is everything. Whether you call it propaganda discourse or expertise, I think it's so critical. We live our reality is the media. Our experience is on the we have uh, we have television that's a lot more lively than our lives. Um, and we, it's almost impossible not to be trapped by it. But don't you, don't you ever listen to talk radio or look at the media and you think, oh, I wish I thought of that really clever bumper sticker kind of idea. It's really, really hard to explain complexity to people. And complexity doesn't play well in rhetoric. Yeah, that's why they laugh at us academics. They say, oh, you people, you know, you, you don't have a chance. Rush Limbaugh eat you up. That's true, too. <laughs>
Dr. Coons, can you expound on the U.S. government's influence, their genocidal practices on Native Americans, and that influence on the, US, the Holocaust? I don't think it had an influence on the Holocaust, but I, how much do you want me to expound? Whatever you'd like to. Well, ready, ready to sit here for? No. Absolutely. I think it is just shocking. Just to give you one example, you know sometimes one example tells you everything? One day, immediately after the Berlin Wall fell, the president of Poland went to Israel and asked, said, I apologize. I am and Poland did not initiate in the genocide or Holocaust. But there was the Polish president going to Israel to apologize. What was our president, what was our government doing? Trying to get out of paying Native Americans damages. And I think Armenia is really unfortunate on this because the Armenians deny their genocide just like all the other genocides are denied before the Armenians. And it's only after the Armenians that it's only after Nazi Germany and that apology has become part of the culture. <coughs> and so that's, that's sort of a segue off in a different direction. But I just, I'm, I'm just speechless when I think of the mindless slaughter done in the name of religion. Chivington in Sand Creek in Colorado. He's, he's got, he's, the governor of Colorado has called up the army and they don't need it because the Indians have said, give us, the Comanches have said, we, we, we're peaceful. Here's the white flag. We're not going to fight anymore. And, you know, taxpayers like to get their money's worth. And so Chivington goes down and he slaughters the mothers and the children and the few braves who are there in, what was it, 68, something like that. It's just, just horrifying. But I, I could go on at length, but you don't want to hear it. Just, just as a, a point of clarity, a couple of times you've referred to the Armenian genocide, and I think you've referred to the Armenians as the perpetrators. Oh my goodness, no. And, uh, oh, I didn't mean to say that. They, oh. In case people here oh. are not understanding, oh, it my was, God. was the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, of course. It wasn't even the Ottoman Empire. It was more specific than that. The Ottoman Empire always tolerated the Armenians. It was the young Turks. I sometimes do misspeak. I, I have to say, when I'm nervous, especially I get dates confused, and I'm like, very, oh, thank you for great. Did I do anything else wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I, I very easily could have. I, I depend on an alert audience. That's one way I know you're alert. <laughs> no, I meant the Turkish genocide, and I say that Turkish national, ethnic Turkish genocide against the Armenians. The Ottoman Empire that they replaced was relatively tolerant. Uh, they had had massacres, it's true, they had pogroms. And they were, Jews were treated badly, Armenians were treated badly, but they didn't exterminate them. Um, I recently wrote a paper on, I, I midterm at the Armenian Genocide, and I wrote a paper on what I had assessed the uh, Germany's role to be in the genocide, looking at the corpus of uh, Yes. Uh, foreign correspondence from Constantinople back to Berlin, the Berlin Foreign Office. Um, I was hoping that you might be able to, to um, given your, your uh, expert knowledge of, of the Nazi regime, uh, maybe point out whether you saw corollaries between, or if you can trace antecedents from the uh, Jewish Holocaust to the Armenian Holocaust. Absolutely true. 
then this is fantastic research done about the last 10 or 15 years. And a lot of these documents on the Armenian genocide are on the web, too. It's just amazing. You have Morgenthau's correspondence. The German general staff advised the, uh, sorry, the Turkish army on genocide. That is clear. And to be even more extreme about it, this is more extreme than I am, but I think part of the point of a public lecture is to make statements that are a little more extreme than you'd say, and so I'm saying it with a caveat. There's a line of argument that goes Africa to Auschwitz that moves from the Namibian extermination to the Armenian genocide to Auschwitz, and it has its anchor in Clausewitz's doctrine of absolute destruction of your enemy. And absolute destruction means you are going to get rid of them lock, stock, and barrel no matter what. And as soon as, as, soon as you can deliver a military shock that utterly destroys them, that's what victory is. And it doesn't matter if it's civilian casualties or not. And they argue there's a German way of war that's not having to do with ethnic prejudice. It has to do with military strategic thinking. And I don't go that far, but you're right to point about the German. And one of the best, one of the best sources you'll see it on the web in translation for the uh, genocide against the Armenians was a German pastor who hated what he saw, and he kept his diary. He kept put, he was a missionary, and he kept sending reports back to the Kaiser as if the Kaiser cared. Um, but. Well, with the or with the almost marginalization of history in today's media, uh, does it worry you that possibly people may forget more and more what happened in the early 20th century? Yeah, it does. In the early 20th century, come on, you guys were, were hardly even born in the late 20th century. <laughs> no, in 1990, you don't remember the Berlin Wall coming down. Of course not. Well, you know, okay. <laughs> anyway, sure. I worry that um, that we're going to become so presentist, and that the History Channel will just get to seem so dull after a while. And I, the only thing I can do as a historian is just keep doing my bit to try to make people remember. Now, of course, I think history is so fascinating. Why wouldn't you want to study history? But a lot of people don't agree. Right here. Um, was it Abel's work you said who had did that essay contest? Yeah, Abel, Abel um, had the essay contest. Yeah, you said that he had thrown out the women's letters. Yeah, is there anything that you had found anything different? Absolutely. Oh, what a good question. That's that's that first book I wrote that got me in all that trouble. There, yes, here's what I found. I found that women, first of all, always talked about their freedom movement. That what they contributed to the Nazi spirit was a facade of decency. The Nazi men in those old days were really louts. They were marching around, they were drunk, they were brawling, they were marginal, they were just, they were just a disgusting bunch of brutes. The women, however, who joined the party did the equivalent of making sandwiches and handing out beer at the party rallies. They went door to door campaigning, and they gave the Nazis a sheen of decency. 
that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And so one of my favorite quotations I'll never forget, that's what makes reading this stuff so much fun. You're just, your eyes are falling out. You can't read a thing. And then you find a phrase like, I was thrilled to do my, my job as a little brown mouse in the greater movement. I mean, if I were a novelist, I couldn't have somebody say, my little brown mouse, you know, for my brown-shirted essay guy. And the women also were resentful at the time that they were never, even back then, as far before the 1933, the women were upset that they weren't ever allowed to wear the swastika because it would be like a Christian not being allowed to wear a cross or a Jew not being allowed to wear the Star of David because they knew, and they couldn't wear brown. They had to wear the colors of the Madonna, blue and white. So already there's a real difference, a division of labor and a division of personality between the men and the women in the Nazi movement. Yeah. You discussed earlier how uh, genocide can still happen in a democratic state. Um, in your opinion, what form or forms of government or political ideologies are most conducive to preventing genocide? You know, I think there isn't a form. I think it would be really neat if we could say there's a formula. Dictatorships are bad, democracies are good. And once we start saying that, we've already let our guard down. So I think our alert system should be separate for different kinds of situations. And the area for, that I'm most frightened about in the world, and I bet you all agree, is the Horn of Africa, Somalia, Rwanda, East Congo, is just a nightmare. It doesn't even have a name. In fact, journalists can't cover it for two reasons. First of all, it's deadly. Two million people have died there in, in eastern Congo, and we don't even know about it. So first of all, it's terribly dangerous for journalists to go there. And secondly, there is no way they can describe it in a simple way. You know, we, you, your mind would go numb if you would try to untangle all the interests of international mineral hunters, local tribes, Paul Kagame, you can't do it. And so therefore, it doesn't happen. We choose not to know about it because we're helpless. <coughs> and that's also called learned helplessness. You often don't want to know what you can't change. Oh, but that's a really down note to end on, isn't it? We'll take one more question. Yeah, good. <laughs> Throw me a happy question. Well, I'm not sure it's going to be happy per se, but I'm just curious. Um, I've heard you use the word, I'm afraid and I fear a lot. And it just struck me that um, Al Gore has spoken a lot about this idea that fear could be used to sort of distract or when we're talking about things that we're trying to convince publics to do and these kinds of things. And I'm just curious probably to comment on the idea that, um, that as a neuroscientist, I often think about when it comes to the difference between the way that we process emotion and the way that we process sort of appropriate versus inappropriate and how they connect. Because as we try to process appropriate versus inappropriate actions, right. If it, in fact, is the case that we're thinking out of fear or dramatic emotions, it's very challenging to get to the complexity. So if you could comment a little bit about that and how fear is consistently part
part of this equation. Almost as if fear feeds hormones into our brains, right? I mean, I know it doesn't. It doesn't change the synapses. But fear is the great solvent, I think, of human decency. When you're afraid, think of the times when you've been afraid. And every time there's a law to take away somebody's liberty, it's always to protect them from something they're afraid of. And I'm really interested in the neuroscience of this, which I'm totally ignorant about. But it also frightens me. And that's, I think, part of it. And I, I was really shocked by the uproar about the mosque, I have to say. Because I, I would do all my work in Europe, and I think of our country as being completely tolerant and wonderful. And I've been surprised at the virulence of the, anti, of the Islamophobia in this country. And the only thing I can say is, to cheer myself up, is that it is a marginal fringe. It is not affecting the mainstream, although there are 18% of the people who think Obama is a Muslim. Uh, I don't know if that's a fringe or not. But uh, so trying to end on an up note, I think we have a government that is, oh, I have to tell you one thing before I say we have a government. Go to the web. Google Murray Hill for Congress. I won't say more. At, uh, Murray Hill for Congress. I can't remember if that's Murray Hill one word or Murray Hill two words, but Google will know. So we can only hope that we have a government and we have a free education system and free thinking so we can put the knowledge we have to the service of maintaining our freedom and our multicultural heritage. Thank you.